Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Now my co-mates... Brothers in exile, hath not old custom made this life more sweet than that of painted pomp? Are not these woods more free from peril than the envious court? Here feel we not the penalty of Adam, the season's difference, as the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind, which when it bites and blows upon my body even till I shrink with cold. I smile and say, this is no flattery, these are counsellors that feelingly persuade me what I am. Sweet are the uses of adversity. That was the Duke to his men in the Forest of Arden in Act Two of As You Like It. Welcome back to The Plays The Thing. I am Tim McIntosh and I am joined, hello Heidi, by Heidi White. Hi, How Tim. are you? I'm doing. I'm doing just fine. Here we. Are. It's the end of days. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the end of days. Um, so so, let's talk about I, you and I before we started recording. Thought it might be kind of fun to just narrate what our existence is like on what is it like maybe like the end of the first week of the coronavirus. Um, protection measures. I'm not quite sure how we're going to call it. I think by the time that we release all five acts of As You Like It, this recording will be, I don't know, maybe a three weeks to five weeks out of date. So we thought it might be kind of a fun time capsule, presuming we're both alive, Heidi, and all of right. our loved ones alive are alive. Um, it might be a nice kind of time capsule to talk about what is going on in our lives during this bizarre, bizarre time. It is um, so strange. It's yeah, just it really is so surreal. And we talked about this when we recorded Crime and Punishment for our listeners who are listening along. Where Crime and Punish last Crime and Punishment recording, we talked about the response and our own situations, and it's been a week since then. Yeah. So that. 
you know, chronological time is tricky with all these different recordings that we do, but we are in Colorado. I am in Colorado. You are not in Colorado anymore, right? right? Cause you were right. the last time we talked. Yeah, that's right. We're traveling back from Colorado. Um, so anyway, we just had a huge blizzard yesterday and like right in the middle of basically the quarantine, the, the stay home if you can. And so we are not only do we need extra food and toilet paper, if you can find any of those things for um, social distancing purposes, but we're also just snowed in. So yeah. it is just a strange time. Um, um, yeah. Part of this act of as you like it, um, there's a strong emphasis on this kind of notion that if we can pull back from the city mm-hmm. and away from the court's corrupting influences, it's, it's jealousies, it's envies. Um, there's something ennobling about the forest. So our, our play has shifted from the court to the forest. All of our main characters have gotten kicked out of the court. And now they're kind of dispersed through the forest and they're wandering here and there. And they're soon going to all kind of gradually join up. That speech that we heard at the top of the recording really emphasizes how much, you know, we can be free if we can get away from the pomp and falsities of the court. And I'm wondering, Heidi... Are we in a similar situation now? You know, what would what would Shakespeare say about the situation that we're in? We're kind of, you know, to some degree self quarantined. At least in Seattle, all the restaurants are closed down, all the bars are closed down, all the schools are closed down. So, like these these meeting places where we would go and gather are deemed dangerous enough that they're they're closed down. Right. Um, Do do you think Shakespeare is saying, "Well, yeah, that's a step in the right direction," or is that a really different sort of situation than his characters are experiencing in the Forest of Arden? That's a good question. I think that you know, human nature being what he is, being what it is, uh, Shakespeare does have something to say about that. In fact, he himself was quarantined during a plague outbreak in London yeah. and he wrote King Lear. So that was, uh, uh, he, he used his time wisely. Yeah, he did. For those of us who are binge watching the office. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think this idea, especially in Elizabethan England in which court intrigue was, I mean, you're risking your life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's people's heads being cut off. There, our pets' heads are falling off. <laughs> Did you catch that reference from Dumb and no. Um, no. So, um, but yeah, this idea of the uh, the removal of like voluntary or involuntary removal into the natural world, or uh, what Shakespearean scholars call the green world, from the corrupting influence of uh, what some. What, what he might claim isn't truly civilized society, right? There's this conflict between, as you pointed out, the corrupting influence of the court uh, and then the 
a ennobling influence of the natural world. And he definitely explores that in As You Like It. And I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, but what I really like about this particular play and what I love about Shakespeare in general, is he never lets anything be so simplistic. So he is mm. drawing the parallel between, uh, or excuse me, the contrast between, not the parallels, the con- he's contrasting the court and the green world. But at the same time, he doesn't let the green world be an Eden, right? It's not yeah. perfect. He even draws attention to that in Act 2, Scene 1, when Duke Sr. talks about how the green world, uh, the Forest of Arden, still has the cold winter winds and they're killing deer and that's sad. And so he still lets it be a place that's truly human, which I like that. Yeah. And I feel he- that <laughs> being stuck in the green world right now. It's not Eden. So you're experiencing the icy fang and churlish chiding of the winter's wind. There you go. Yep. He does. Nature bites back, even in the green world. And right. I think this is part of its ennobling influence is that it, it's not, as you just said, an Eden, but it's a place of, it's a beautiful place. Um, it's a somewhat welcoming place, but more than anything else, it's a place that has the ability to provide something like an authentic trial as opposed to the inauthentic trial of, you know, all these petty back and forths of the court. And all of us have experienced this in one way or another. Um, Human society, and I'm as guilty as anybody, is full of um, territory squabbles and easily hurt feelings and hierarchies that want to be preserved and others want to tear them down. And there is something about going away from that, which is in some ways sort of cleansing. Hmm. And part of it, I think Shakespeare is saying, part of it is the forest is it's not always an easy place. I think we'd be wrong to read the forest of Arden as merely a place of beautiful repose. No, it's a place that actually stings and bites and provides adversity. Right. Right. I agree completely. And I, man, we talk about this with Shakespeare all the time. I feel like a little bit of a broken record, but I, I think that one thing that Shakespeare never does is idealizes a place. Uh, we did, you know, before we recorded this one, we recorded The Tempest, and he doesn't idealize the island. It has, as you point out, plenty of adversity along with it, but it's yeah. the kind of inverse adversity that um, that provides an opportunity for characters to uh, go through some kind of trial and disorder and to come back into order. As you said, it provides a purifying kind of adversity rather than one that is going to break down uh, these characters. It's going to build them up. Yeah. Okay. Disorder Mm -hmm. and a return to order. Heidi, I want to ask you something. Um, and I'm seeing so many parallels in our modern time. I want to come back to that. So, but but I'm going to go back. Well, no, let's go there now. Let's go there now. <laughs> what what 
what are the parallels that you're thinking of in our modern oh, time? Man, just this this virus and how how much the 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 response that I see in myself and in my community and on social media is um is is it this is revealing the disorders within our society, like our addictions to entertainment and mm. um and and the easy life, right? Like even even last night I was having a conversation with with the Scott White about how and he was saying it's just like it sounds so silly, but this is this is modernity, right? Like it's it's hard to not have like an NBA game to flip on at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, like, that's part of that is what something like this reveals are, are the, the fault lines, the cracks within a society. And we have the opportunity to then become a mending or a healing force to those things in our own souls and in the larger world, or to, you know, throw up our hands and complain and, and live in fear and, and wait for the government to fix it. And, and, you know, become then part of the disordering force of society. But it's adversity that reveals those fault lines and those cracks in real life as well as in stories. And and I I see that in this play. Yeah. I was I was I had a couple conversations yesterday. Um one of them was with my sister and another one was with a friend of mine who uh is a nurse at a at a large clinic in Atlanta and she has two little girls and she has um older parents so i'm just going to set this scene because this is the first time that i started giving getting really nervous about the virus and I, and i don't want to make it sound like i'm ignorant about the possibilities of my loved ones getting sick or me getting sick or like the thing that I worry about more than anything else is probably like passing it along unwittingly to somebody because I've not been careful. So my friend is presumably going to be in contact with Corona victims through her clinic. There are none yet, but the expectation is this is just going to happen. Her girls are, gosh, eight and six. So she could send her girls to her parents who have, you know, said, we want to take care of them. But is she, but that might mean that she has no access to her girls for as long as this thing lasts. Because if she has, you know, if she's kind of spending a lot of time in virus riddled places. Right. She could potentially transfer it to her daughters, and though her daughters might not be ill because it doesn't seem like that's where the virus is hitting, they could be transfers to her parents, and she's feeling terrible that, oh my gosh, if she was responsible for her parents getting ill in their old age. And I just thought, oh goodness, there is no good solution for her. The other solution is her clinic has said, if you want to bring your girls to the clinic, we will have a place where they can stay and play and they'll be out of harm's way. You know, they'll be kept safe and they won't be trafficking the virus, et cetera, et cetera. But still that was, you know, it's, it's this, there is no good solution. And she's hearing these rumors 
Uh, I won't even repeat the rumors because they're, I don't know that they're confirmed. But being in that industry, she's hearing rumors that make her nervous and make sure. her afraid that like, oh gosh, this might not be contained. So I know for myself, I am trying to find this way of being really attuned to what the truth is about um, the way should I should comport myself in public and what sort of things I need to do to kind of protect myself and other people. But I also, to get that information, it's you kind of walk, walk this fine line of you could go down the rabbit hole and read all of the rumors and all of the speculations in an effort to keep yourself safe and you would never come out of your closet again. Right, right. No, it's true. Well, and that... <laughs> To your point, I mean, the first thing I thought of when you said that was the Chronicles of Narnia. It was the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because those children are sent out of London into the country to go see mm -hmm. the professor because there's a threat to the society uh, right. through the bombings in London. And, and so Lewis is using the same trope as Shakespeare is here that there's, there's a sickness, there's, there's a threat within this, the, the larger world within the civilized world. And the only way to mend that threat in the lives of individuals is they have to, at some point, be removed from it and experience an, an entry into another world, access to another world. And, and in that world, whether it's magical or not, it, it is in Midsummer Night's Dream, it is in The Tempest, but it's not in As You Like It. The green world is just a it, it has kind of a magical feel to it, but really it doesn't have any magic in it. It's, but it is yeah. a removal. It's a place of wonder, a place of renewal, a place uh, in which the seasons uh, are perform kind of their healing work on the souls of these people who have been wounded by the, the broken world. And, and that's like, that's a very Christian idea. Mm. And that there is, a sickness in the fallen world that can be mended and made right in another world. Yeah. But I like what Shakespeare does. Is he makes it very human. Yeah, very. And, and he makes it a place in which there's plenty of adversity. There's plenty of disorder. Uh, there's, there's plenty to be made right there uh, as well as in the, the, the civilized world. And then at the end of this play, and this is giving something away, so I'm sorry, everybody goes back. Mm -hmm. But they bring the healing with them. Mm. And, uh, and, and that goes back to the pastoral tradition in a literary sense. And I think, the, uh, I think that's a very Christian idea. There's a, very, yeah. there's, a, there's a sweetness to that idea. Yeah, there is for sure. Um, disordering the, the word has come up a few times already in our conversation, Heidi, this play is centers around one key couple mm. and this couple has, they met at the beginning, Orlando and Rosalind, and now they're at, sort of separated from each other. They don't know really that the other loves that each other loves how do you say that? They don't, they have not revealed their love to each other. Right. Right. Um, but, it, and this is a comedy and so often Shakespeare's comedies, if not all the time are center around 
uh, a match that a match that is being thwarted, but by the end of the comedy, the match happens, the couple gets together and usually there's a wedding ceremony. Mm -hmm. Um, but along the way, the effects of love, of romantic love upon the couple, Shakespeare describes it, it, it. You mentioned this off the air. It seems like it is both a disordering effect and an ordering effect. Romantic love. Mm. Mm-hmm. This is this is your observation off the air, and I think I'm, I'm so wise. I'm you are so wise. <laughs> you are so wise. No, it's exactly right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that definitely plays out here. And and it this is in I think every Shakespearean comedy, some more dark than others. Uh-huh. Um but and in this play it's very it is very lighthearted and as you like it. Uh maybe one of the most lighthearted treatments of love in Shakespeare, I think. Um while also being very profound at the same time. Mm-hmm. There's never a sense I get in as you like I really just don't ever get a sense that um, that there's some kind of real danger to these people that I, I do. I realize that Oliver is out to get Orlando. I get that. I, I, right. But it doesn't feel dark. You know, some of Shakespeare's other comedies really have a, a melancholy to them. Even at like Twelfth Night has this, thread of melancholy and like you can't and and merchant of venice is like that too like you can't get away from the sadness even as you're tracing the thread of redemption in the in the story but as you like it is different to me it's i think it's very lighthearted throughout and i don't take any of the threats very seriously but it still is very disordered in the sense that you're like it gets really complicated and you don't know how they're going to sort it all out yeah yeah. Um, and act two is a long act. That's what we're talking about today. And it, and it has all of these threads that are getting tangled up throughout the act. Um, you're, he's presenting all of these different threads of disorder and they're all kind of getting really entangled as we go. And that's pretty normal in a Shakespeare, the trajectory of a Shakespearean play. It gets the act two, acts one and two kind of give you this mounting sense of disorder. And you're like, how are they, how are they going to get out of this one? How are these lovers ever going to get together? How are they going to, and, and then, and that kind of peaks in act three and then detangles uh, and, and weaves together to form something in the, in the, in acts four and five. And that is a very common trajectory in Shakespearean plays. And that's very, I mean, just in stark relief in this one. Um, but we have a lot of mistaken identities in this play. Um, and, uh-huh. and that's common in pastoral tradition. I'll stick to a literary thread here for a minute. Uh, the pastoral tradition comes from ancient Greek comedies, uh, and in which the characters would leave the city because of some kind of threat to their young love uh, and mostly because of fathers who refuse to let people get together. Yeah. Um, there's 
and and we see that in Shakespeare over and over again, but it's a, it comes from Greek comedy. Uh, this idea that there's this older generation that is holding back the younger generation from being able to be together because of some kind of empty tradition or ambition on the part of the father. Uh, and uh, like he wants his highborn daughter to marry uh his jerky highborn neighbor's kid so that they can join the family estates together. But Romeo and Juliet. Yes, but exactly. But the younger generation, you know, usually it's a highborn lady has fallen in love with a lowborn man. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's a farmer, and so she goes out there disguised, and they get together, something like that. So that's the pastoral tradition. And in and in in rejecting the city state, which is, is is literally a walled city in Greece, in ancient Greece, and leaving the walled contained city state that's literally dirty as well as morally corrupt, and going out into the pastoral landscape where they're growing grapes and drinking wine, and it's warm mm-hmm. all the time, and and it just feels free and happy and then this they have these disguised identities and then somehow along the way they disentangle their uh the the obstacles they remove the obstacles to their love and they get to get married and then the father finds out that the young shepherd boy was actually a prince in disguise the whole time then they're welcome back into the city and that's a traditional Greek comedy in the pastoral tradition. And Shakespeare borrows that in a number of his plays, particularly in this one, kind of pokes fun at it as well as using it to explore some pretty profound ideas about love and order. Um, Romeo and Juliet, to keep up with the theme, they meet for the first time at a masked ball Mm. and they kind of reveal each other to themselves um, but they also kind of like recognize, at least for this time being, they have to keep their masks on because they are from opposite families, families that are at war. I, I want to go back, Heidi, um, to romantic love as both disordering and ordering. And I want to ask you, why does it have that kind of dual effect? But I want to skip ahead and and read a section from this famous scene where Rosalind and Orlando meet. So they meet in the forest um, a couple of acts from now. And Rosalind is, per your like description, she is uh, disguised. She's disguised as a man. So she's giving Orlando, who is completely love-struck with her, but doesn't know who she is because she's disguised, um, Rosalind is giving him advice on how to court, mm. but she also kind of goes into this um, description of the effects of love. And I want to read a little bit of it. Rosalind says, love is merely a madness. And I tell you, deserves as well a dark house and a whip as madmen do. And the reason why they are not so punished and cured is that the lunacy is so ordinary that the whippers are in love too. So there's this sense like there's this kind of contagiousness. Love is a madness that is so contagious that even the people who try to drive it out become infected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious about this and I, I completely resonate with what you said that romantic love in Shakespeare, it's, it's almost a hurricane. Mm-hmm. And so it disorders, but there is something ordering about it because it is the path toward marriage. And marriage in the comedies, so often it is the solution 
not just to love sickness, but it's a bigger solution. It's a harmonizing solution um, that brings couples together, that brings families together, that reorganizes towns, cities that have fallen into some sort of disharmony because of, let's say, Romeo and Juliet warring factions, or maybe like um, measure for measure, there's an overly stringent ruler who's like suppressing. Um, so l- let's talk about it. I want to hear what you think. Why does romantic love both dis- bring disorder and order? Yeah, I it is really interesting, the paradoxes of that. Um, so in this particular play, Rosalind is in good standing at court in Act One, and so is Celia. And because they fall in love, they are cast out. They Well, mm-hmm. they actually decide to leave. Because the love that they fall into and I'll talk about that in a second is um is is a threat to the existing social order uh-huh. and and so in that sense it's a disordering force it's disordering to their own lives because then they have to make a choice right they have to choose a path am I going to follow this love that has happened to me I'm a passive victim of it in a way or am I going to uh, deny my desire for this person and 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 do what is conceived of by my elders, usually the f- overbearing father figure of some kind. In this case, it's the corrupt Duke Frederick. As and, and am I going to follow what he tells me is my duty? So it's this constant choice between duty and desire in every Shakespearean comedy. Um, love is presented as desire and the social order is presented as duty. And the Elizabethan audience would have absolutely recognized the social order as a moral duty. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that Americans, the individualistic American... A tougher for us. Yes, like we don't quite understand that we're always on the side of the young lovers because they're in love and and we are entirely a society driven by our desire that is the higher force that's not the case in elizabethan england in that hierarchy of elizabethan life and actually in most of human history yeah the social order is the duty and so rightly so in their eyes and so to be a lover is to be overcome, as Shakespeare says over and over again in this play and in others, by a kind of madness mm-hmm. that is profoundly disorienting to the individual because of how much of a threat it is to everything they've ever been raised to love and to recognize as their duty. Yeah. Um, and to recognize as God's moral order. You were born a highborn person, Rosalind, because God wanted you to be, because that's where you were placed mm-hmm. in society. So to mm-hmm. throw that over for the sake of a feeling for a, a, a younger brother, just because he's really good in a wrestling match, like to Americans, we're like, yeah, you go, girl, but not to yeah. Elizabethans. Right. So, it is a disordering force in her life and in the society in which she is a functioning member. Um, but Shakespeare's more subtle than that. Um, he 
he actually then throughout the play, even though it's a comedy and it's hilarious and there's all these hijinks and funny speeches and characters, what he's really saying is desire and duty can be brought together. Yeah. And and that's the course of the redeeming aspect of the play. By the end of that's the play- That's the harmonizing. Yes, that's the harmonizing effect of romantic love. That's exactly right. By the end of the play, it's Rosalind and Orlando's love that- is that takes place in the green world that develops there in a very funny context. Um, it is it is their love that then harmonizes the duty and desire, not only of themselves, but of their society and creates a new and more healed society. So yeah. that everybody has a new place and a new duty and a new role. And then they bring that back to the civilized world thus healing the corrupt city as well as themselves. Yeah. Heidi, I'm going to go on a couple of tangents. Um, The first one, I I think what you said about the United States, our vision of ourselves is very individualistic. And I, I kind of wonder if the virus is going to put that at least for a, the time being, to the test. And what I mean is this, mm. that the World Health Organization has, I think last week, singled out a couple of countries for doing a very good job at containing the virus. And those two countries were China and South Korea. But um, if you look at the way in which they did, at least China, contain the virus, it was very stringent. Mm-hmm. So if you lived in an apartment complex, you had to get swabbed upon re-entering. If you left for groceries, you had to get swabbed and tested upon re-entering. And there are all sorts of methods that we might call, you know, draconian right. that um, the Chinese utilized to flatten their curve, their outbreak curve. Um, and I heard a commentator say, gosh, if it came to that, would we go along with it? Like if, if um, the authorities in our country said, yeah, it's gotten to that point now that we need to take stringent measures like the Chinese did. China is a much more autocratic society than ours is. And so I was thinking, okay, would we go along with it? And, and my thought was, my I think the biggest reason why we would object is not in action, but in um, we would have a major epistemic obstacle to doing something like that. And, mm-hmm. and what I mean is with an autocratic society, there is kind of gravity to believe in the authorities of the state, partly because you get punished if you don't. Mm -hmm. Um, In the United States, I think part of what is difficult about, what is going to be difficult about managing the virus is, well, who do you believe? Who do you believe? We don't have an autocratic state, and so... Every person to some degree is a king unto himself, a queen unto herself. And that means um, there's a strong inclination to kind of question 
you know, to, to ask the question, says who? Is right. this really viable information? Whereas in a more autocratic society, um, pushing back against asking the question who says does not benefit you at all. It's easier just to go along with it. Right, right. So I, that's the thing that I kind of worry about for the United States is if there really is, um, if, if the curve continues to expand, do we have the ability not just to unify in action, but to take the step before action, which is, can we unify about the legitimacy of the threat, acknowledge it, and then take action accordingly? Right. Yes, I agree. There is a sense in the American mind of you can't tell me what to do and I'm an exception to the rules that apply to everybody else, but not to me. And I think we don't know that about ourselves. <laughs> and I think that's one of the things that literature does is that it, it, it allows us to kind of create, to displace ourselves from our own circumstances and look at the circumstances of a different time, a different way of thinking, a different um, perspective on the world and to enter into that. And from that perspective, then to look back at ourselves and, and that that's what Lewis argues in, uh, on the reading of old books, um, which is an introduction to St. Athanasius's on the incarnation. And it's a, a masterpiece in itself, that introduction. Uh, and, and I th- think that's part of what we attempt to do when we read old books like Shakespeare, we enter into that and we look at like, even just this conversation, I'm reading as you like it differently saying in some ways I'm in a green world right now. How can I acknowledge my disorder and, and reorder it to a new society? Yeah. And within myself, within my family, within my community. And I, and you're right, this, any, a national crisis it exposes the cracks and the fault lines in each individual soul and also in the soul of that nation and society. And that's what Shakespeare does. That's like his thing. Yeah. Is yeah. He, in every play, it's that. It's let's look at the, the fault lines in this character and then let's look at the fault lines in this society. Let's look at how profoundly unfair mm. primogenitor is. Mm. That Oliver, who is a jerk like a, a morally corrupt, greedy individual. He has access to all of the wealth of his family and has withheld it from his worthy younger brother, Orlando, mm. who does not have the education of a gentleman and is forced then to live like a peasant and is healed by the love of a good woman who's been banished from her society even for no good reason. Yeah. And yeah. that is... I mean, that Shakespeare explores that. And we, I think, in a crisis like this, can find ourselves in these books. And I'm so interested and intrigued by the fact that right now people are reading plague literature and watching plague films. Uh huh. <laughs> I just uh-huh. think that's like fascinating. Oh, I do too. I do too. I mean, I, I, I think it's got to be, I have been wanting to go back and read Camus' The Plague which I used to teach at Gutenberg. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think, if I'm not mistaken, that Camus lived through an outbreak like the one, much more severe than the one that we're living through when he was in France. This would have been after World War II. If I, gosh, I hope I remember that correctly. But I'm just curious. That book is a, in many, it's a very bleak book, but I've been curious to go back and read it just to read, did it feel to him the way it feels to me? Does it feel different? Hmm. What is it, you know, like what are the similarities and what are the dissimilarities? And, and I think, I mean, this is why we read literature, why we read movies. There's an attempt to kind of like understand someone in circumstances similar to our own, similar to our own in the hopes that we can sort of, like children pretend, pretend our way into solutions. What would I do in this situation? Would I be a good person? Would I be a bad person? Would I would be I the shut hero? The would I be the villain? The yes, yeah, trying to come right. Into the city. This is Camus' question. We're all going to shut the gates. That's the conclusion yeah. he comes to, and you hope that that's not true. But yeah, that's what happens in the city. Everyone's left out. Uh huh. Um, Heidi, is it easier just to adopt a pose like Jacquees hmm. adopts? I mean, isn't he, he is such a curious character. Yes. He, he has, he, let me just give you my impression of Jacquees yeah, and I'd please. like to hear what your impression of Jacquees is. Um, he is socially unbonded. So he's hanging out with these guys in the forest of Arden, but he's not really linked to them in right. any way. If that makes any sort of sense, they, they like to laugh at him. They think he's, profound at times and indeed he's very profound um but there's not there's not an affection for him that um the lord has for excuse me the duke senior has for his other men it's more like jacques is kind of um almost a court jester in some way but a court jester that doesn't have the sort of acute moral sense than the clown does in, in Lear mm-hmm. as a, as a contrast. And yes. he's Jacques is so jaded. He's such a cynical character. I, I find myself disliking him for all of his profundity. I find myself not enjoying his company very much. Yeah. What, what are your impressions? I totally of agree. I think that Jacques is like so to your point, he's fascinating because there's there's a long tradition of Shakespearean uh analyst scholars or whatever who who think of him as a failed character, but I don't. I the and their reasons are because his melancholy never really uh transcends itself into profundity. And I think that's true, but I think that's intentional on Shakespeare's part. And I think it's really cool. I, I like that about him is different from, um, some of the other melancholy or sad characters in Shakespearean comedy, um, Malvolio and 12th night is yeah. comes to mind. He's an incredibly sad and profound and broken Caliban, um, and Shylock. 
Jacques is not a villain. He's just kind of this melancholy presence in the green world. And if you want to allegorize it to the soul, he's like the part of us that can never be made happy, no matter how good things are. Right. And, um, and is always just kind of grumpy about everything all the time and wants to make that into some kind of profundity, but it just ends up being just like silly, melancholy, melodrama. Yeah, yeah. And Touchstone, on the other hand, is in, entirely nihilistic, but um, he actually has some kind of moral weight to him, whereas Jacques is just kind of silly and almost like adolescent. And is like, you know, you kind of get the feeling- A little that bit he's, petulant. Yes, like he doesn't yeah. have any kind of real- uh, any any kind of really truly profound grief. There's no grief to him. He's just grumpy. Yeah, He's just like yeah, mad right. all the time and finds problems with everything. Yeah, and doesn't like anything. Um, there's a really funny. This is giving something away from the next time we talk. But there's a really funny scene when he tells Orlando he doesn't like Rosalind's name. Orlando's like, I what? Jacquees asks him, "What's your love's name?" And and Orlando's like, "Rosalind." He's like, "I don't like her name." <laughs> and and Orlando says there's there's no thought of pleasing you when she was christened. <laughs> and that <I> think, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what a great line. I, I didn't know that line. Yeah, what it's a perfect. great line. And it, it to me it is like the encapsulation of what's wrong with Jacquees. Like who cares if you like her name? Like you right. don't actually get a say. And yeah, your right. problems with the world are not real problems. There's just they're just I don't like her name. Right. And get over it. And it isn't, in my opinion, it isn't that Jacques is a failed character and Shakespeare wanted him to have actually some kind of profound moral insight to offer about the broken nature of the world. I think he's just has made him into this like part of human soul and human society that just can't be pleased, even in the green world. In that sense, is he meant to be a warning? Maybe. I don't know. What do you think? What are, what are your thoughts on his kind of role in the play? I, I find it difficult. I might align myself with critics who said he's a failed character. I mean, he has some of the most wonderful lines or monologues in the play, but he's so repellent that I I, I might think he's a false character he's there's not much of an arc to him mm-hmm. yeah he's stock entirely flat the whole time yeah which is so curious it's not it, the fact that we're saying this about a shakespearean character like raises my eyebrows because it's so uncommon for even a bit player in shakespeare to not have a kind of a compelling arc but for me jacques is one of them but he does have and i'm going to ask you to read it heidi um, as we kind of wrap up here, he does have one of the best known monologues in all of Shakespeare's comedy, the all the world, all the world's a stage monologue. Um, I'm going to ask you to read it, Heidi, and then I'm going to tell you what we did. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago I was in Colorado and I helped direct a Shakespeare showcase of about 10 Shakespeare scenes for the Paideia School in um, Fort Collins, Colorado. And we used this monologue as the kind of opening piece. 
to kind of set the stage for the other scenes that would follow. So I'd like Heidi, indulge me a little bit, if you wouldn't mind reading Jacquees's speech, and then I'm going to tell you what we did to stage it, because I think our listeners might enjoy it. It's, it's kind of fun. Got it. All right. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school, and then the lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' eyebrows, then a soldier full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly with good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice turning again toward childish trouble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange, eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion, Sans teeth, sans eye, sans taste, sans everything. It's a beautiful speech, and it's a very Jacquees speech. So the end of the seven acts of man is a return to childishness without teeth, eyes, taste. So instead of um, one goes to one's grave, you know, having live the richness of life um to take his reward no it's a return to childishness and you lose everything it's a very jacques kind of conclusion to the speech mm-hmm. we had we used this as kind of an opening narration for our shakespeare showcase so the audience shows up and our narrator that was me was kind of offset And I read the seven ages speech and we actually staged each of the seven. So at first the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms. So we had an infant who was carried across the stage in the nurse from Romeo, the Romeo, excuse me, the Juliet and nurse scene from Romeo and Juliet. So we had the young woman who's going to play the nurse she carries the infant across. Then we had a little boy dragging a book with his satchel, you know, like looking grumpy. So we staged each of these things and it was really fun. And it was kind of like a way to sort of um, introduce the audience to some of the different characters who were going to play different parts. Um, and I loved it. I just loved it. And I, I, I've done two or three Shakespeare showcases in which we've used this as kind of a little opening um, panoply of characters. Is that panoply? I hope that I used that word the right way. If I didn't, I think you did. Please. Okay. I hope so. Correct me on Facebook if I didn't. Um, that's good. I love that. Oh, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. Hey, Heidi, let's, um, 
we're going to do act three really soon. And uh, we are going to release as you like it as a batch. We're going to try to release all five acts at once. So people can just, instead of watching the office, binge watching the office, they can binge listen to Shakespeare's play. I would recommend as I did last week, there's a good BBC version of As You Like It starring Helen Mirren as Rosalind. It's not the highest production value. It was made in the 80s. And um, if you've gotten used to HD, you'll be a little bit frustrated at the picture quality. But it's still some of the, you know, just some best English actors in the world are part of the, part of the movie. So I would recommend that if uh, listeners would like to see a full production of As You Like It, I would recommend that. There's also a more contemporary version made in the 2000s, which I have not seen, Heidi. I don't know if you have. I have not. No. Yeah, so I, I can't recommend it firsthand. Um, Heidi, any closing thoughts or anything that you're looking forward to in the last three acts of our play? Yeah, I am excited because we're about to get to, we've had a lot, a lot of foreshadowing here, a lot of building action leading to how in the world are we going to get our lovers together? How many, how many lovers are going to be brought together right. in this play? And uh, so stay tuned to act three, uh, definitely puts puts that in. I'm looking forward to the c- contemplation from the many disguises uh, that are in this play. Yeah. Uh, particularly with Rosalind and Orlando. And I'm I'm just excited because I just I like this play because it is so lighthearted. Like it's fun. Mm. Mm. And underneath the fun, there's there's a lot of profound contemplations, but it's not a, a a play with any kind of like heart of darkness to it, you know. And yeah, um, so which I'm going to put you on the spot, Tim, here, yeah. and say you prefer the heart of darkness in a good Shakespeare. You like yeah, the good Shakespearean tragedy. I do. I do. I, I think that his dramas, which all are kind of written around the same time, and I'll just enumerate them as best I can. Othello, Hamlet, Macbeth, Lear, Coriolanus. I'm missing one, Heidi. Probably a very famous one. <laughs> Listeners are like, come on, you're forgetting this one. Um, at least those and probably one more. I, I just think those are like mountain peaks in world literature. And I, I do, I mean, as, as brutal as the ending of Othello is, as brutal as the ending of King Lear is, I find those, the kind of, I find the hard parts of those plays so enriching. I just, they echo in my mind and they echo in my heart more, more than as you like it does more even than Midsummer Night's Dream or Much Ado About Nothing does. Mm, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I would, I would say, and you can, you can just tell me I'm wrong on this, Tim. <laughs> I would say that the, the 
contemplations that come up in the comedies are just as profound, but in a very mm. different way. And, mm. and I think in this, in, in a very, it feels very different, obviously. And there is something about grief and loss that is, you know, kind of forces a, a, a human connection to the transcendent. But I think mm. in the comedies, if you want to find it, you can. And as you yeah. like it, it's there. This idea of the the harmonizing influence of love, um, whether or not Jacques is a works as a character, or whether he's just kind of a whiny adolescent, it's a good question. And um, and if he is just intended to be whiny, what does that say? And and that's the question that I I'm always interested in with Jacques. Um, yeah, is if he is not supposed to be, you know, the Malvolio, the Shylock, the Caliban, who's what, what if he is just a guy who complains? <laughs> right. And right. If that's true, I think there's something to that. Mm. Th- that idea that even in the green world where there is this lighthearted kind of um, everything's tangled up, but that, but but love is a harmonizing force, and yet there's this resistant character who can't or won't enter into that. Yeah, and he has a main part in the play. Yeah, I and particularly right now with the coronavirus thing, when I frankly see that guy everywhere on social media, like oh, you know, yeah. like what if you just resist the opportunity to be redeemed by the green world? Yeah, what if you just live and die as Jacques? Yeah. That's a sad fate. Right. You're right. Yeah. I was just thinking, Heidi, that I think part of the reason that the dark dramas are so compelling to me is that the lessons are in the story arcs. Um, So Macbeth, I think we learn something about profound about human nature when we see Macbeth get his just desserts at the end of that play. And that's his death. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we learn something about human nature when we see Kent, the servant, like the righteous servant to King Lear, hold steady the entire play and remain faithful to his master, even when his master goes insane. We learn something about the kind of person that we want to be. I think that we do get some of that in the comedies, but I think the wisdom, more of the wisdom comes actually from the soliloquies and monologues Hmm. or kind of like the long exchanges between characters in As You Like It and in the comedies. And I think it's really interesting that, that Jacques is one of the few characters that holds in, in Shakespeare's corpus that holds steady mm-hmm. the way that somebody like Kent holds steady, but he does not hold steady toward the good. He just holds steady toward his own, toward like nursing his own frustrations, his own cynicisms, his own disappointments with the world. Right. And yeah, I don't want to be that guy. Right. I don't want to be that guy. I want to, I want to be Kent. Right. Well, and in so many, so many of the the comedies, the 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 resistant 
character has some kind of breaking point opportunity. Yeah, like yeah. With, with Malvolio, for example, I know we keep, I keep referencing him, and uh, I I, f- I find the Malvolio storyline like extremely disturbing, and mm. it is this. Um, like cruelty directed towards him that I see is very disproportionate to the crime. And, and that to me haunts the play and anchors it to a kind of tragedy, even in the midst of the comedy. And, and in this play, I think that the tragedy of Jacques is that he doesn't have any trajectory. Yeah. He's treading water. Yes, he's just grumpy all the time. And 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 while everybody else is being profoundly changed and by the influence of this green world, by the order and disorder of love, by uh, their own desires coming in conflict with duty, by their social order, like all of these every other character experiences some kind of great transformation except for him and and that is why i even the fact that he remains a stock character throughout is unique yeah yeah and it could be that shakespeare just didn't get it together to give him you know because like just made him a stock character but i do think it's more than that or i want to think it's more than that i want to think that he's kind of the the character that says if you choose to resist being harmonized, you can stay a jerk. Uh-huh. You'll be quippy at the best, but... Um, You'll have nothing to say, really. Right. And like I You'll said... You'll just be a walking complaint. Yeah. And like I said, I know that guy. I know like 50 of those guys. And yeah. like, so that's, you know... Uh, especially you see him come out in droves in during an election year and during a national crisis. So. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So don't be Jacques. Don't be Jacques. If you, if you learn nothing from this episode, don't be Jacques. Right. Hey, Heidi. Um, I just want to remind everybody that you listeners can join the conversation online on Facebook. The close reads Facebook feed is hopping. It's so good. It's so fun. It's, it's like, it really does. Like, people that say they have an online community, I'm always like, what would that look like? That sounds miserable. And then I go on the Close Reads Facebook page. And I'm like, oh, this is my online community. This, I love these interacting. These are my people. These are my people. We exchange everything from memes to menus. Uh-huh. And they're just so fun. And if you have a question for David, for Heidi, for myself about, you know, things that we've recorded online, like I got a really great question about um, the nihilism in crime and punishment, the kind of like Russian brand of nihilism on the Facebook page. And it was because we talked about that during our last recording, Heidi, Uh it was really fun to kind of just like delve into that a little bit more. So find us online on Facebook through the Close Reads discussion group. You can also find us on Instagram and at Twitter at Close Reads Pods, P-O-D-S, and via email at the close at CloseReadsPodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget our email newsletter, which you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. 
Hey, Heidi, this has been a lot of fun. Yes, it has. I really do. I, I'm enjoying this. And it's I'm I just keep I'm just sitting here thinking, man, Shakespeare is always relevant. Always. Always. Hey, listener, thanks for joining us and tune in for Act Three of As You Like It the next time we record. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.